the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Hope you had a great weekend spending time in some form in fellowship, in church, maybe from your living room, maybe in the family room with other members of your congregation. But uh, I hope it was a refreshing weekend for you. I know for many of us whose congregations are not meeting face to face, it's a challenge through this season, but I'm so grateful that we have opportunity to come together around God's word using technology. So I hope you at least had the uh, opportunity to do that and took advantage of it. Today on the program, we're going to uh, talk with Katie Reed. She's a an interview I had some time ago, Made Like Martha, Good News for Women Who Get Things Done. <laughs> She'll be uh, featured in the second hour of today's program. We'll also let you know how John MacArthur's uh, church uh, has won a legal battle, allowing them not only to meet, but to sing, something they've been doing. Uh, but of course, there was a court, court challenge uh, that would have uh, that sought to prevent that from continuing. So we'll share more on that a bit later in the program. First, we'll take a look at some of the uh, the news stories from the last several days. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has called members uh, back from their August recess to address issues regarding the U.S. Postal Service, while urging Democrats to appear at their local post offices with the battle to protect mail-in ballots for the 2020 presidential election. We'll talk more about the hysteria around the U.S. Postal Service, find out what's true and what's uh, misleading about the whole controversy. Pelosi on Sunday said the post office has become election central thanks to the coronavirus pandemic, even as the president and Republicans have warned for months that universal mail-in ballots would cause widespread voter fraud in the election. Let me pause for a moment. Mail-in ballots, the universal mail-in ballots, that means ballots are mailed out to any and everyone who has ever been on the voter rolls, as opposed to an absentee ballot that has to be requested by an individual. There's no opposition to that. It's the other, where you have uh, ballots sent to people who may or may not be eligible to vote, who may or may not be living, and so on, and it um, provides opportunity for exploitation. Anyway, alarmingly across the nation, she said, we see the devastating effects of the president's campaign to sabotage the election by manipulating the Postal Service to disenfranchise voters, she said. Well, the president and the Republicans have been warning for months about possible fraud connected to mail-in voting. Again, more on that later in the program. In other related developments, the Democrats are demanding that the Postmaster General testify, and mail-in voting is facing a slew of issues. The RNC uh, chairwoman, McDaniel, says the DNC is set to showcase the Biden-Harris radical policies as the uh, convention begins this evening for the Democrat Party. And President Trump warned New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio on Sunday night that the federal government would act if his office fails to get a grip on the opening increase, the ongoing increase on uh, victim, uh, victims of violent crime in the city. Law and order, the president uh, tweeted, if at New York City mayor can't do it, we will. At least five people died in shootings across the city and at least 30 shootings uh, in the same area. New York City is facing record vacancies after the ongoing exodus, and Rudy Giuliani says he could fix New York City in months. 
Meanwhile, Mark Levin says Senator Kamala Harris is the most extreme candidate for high office in U.S. history, saying presumptive Democratic vice presidential nominee Harris is far from the moderate the mainstream media seeks to portray her. He was speaking Life, Liberty, and Levin. He's the host of the program, Warning on Sunday. Reflecting on Harris's record during the opening of her of his show, he asked viewers to think as I go through this list that I made today, each and every one of these items, how radical it is and how wrenching it would be to our society. She is farther left than 97% of the Democrats in the United States Senate. She is left of avowed Marxist Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders. She's not moderate. She's not a pragmatist like the New York Times has said. Other related developments, a new national poll shows Trump is gaining ground in key demographics. We'll take a look at those polls where Biden is leading. And Death Valley saw temperatures that challenged the hottest ever on Earth, at least recorded. And the Washington Post writer has penned a glowing piece on Joe Biden, then mentions so in passing that her son works for the campaign. File this under the not much you can do about column. Researchers say that, uh, or I should say a researcher says that he knows how the universe is going to end. And as you can imagine, it's not pleasant. I would encourage you to read the scriptures. Just saying. Chicago's mayor is praising police for dealing with weekend protesters. And South Dakota's governor has turned down an extra $300 a week unemployment benefit that's been offered. Japan's prime minister has entered a hospital for evaluation. And Rolls-Royce is closing its Virginia plant where 280 work. And remote work is reshaping the city of San Francisco. Well, the Democratic National Convention fires up today. The convention will feature a star-studded array of the country's most prominent party leaders, key allies of presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden and rising stars in the Democrat circles, as well as a few Republicans sprinkled in. Chris Wallace says that the Biden campaign is shutting out all Sunday shows on convention eve, a continuation of their serial avoidance of tough questions. Bernie Sanders independently offered himself as a surrogate. It's the darndest thing I've ever seen, he said, using other language. The NYPD union has endorsed Donald Trump. The union, representing over 24,000 police officers, rarely endorses a candidate. I suppose it's not altogether surprising in our current climate. And polls have Biden's lead narrowing. And according to the NBC poll, the economy tops the list in the minds of voters. Most of Biden's voters are simply against Trump. The last NBC poll had Biden up 11, but has dropped to nine. And CNN has it much closer with Biden holding a slim four-point lead. That's among registered voters. Larry Sabato points out uh, that we should look at the past four CNN polls, regardless of whom you favor. It's a bit difficult to buy that from April to August, Biden's lead was 11 points, then five, then 14, then four, bouncing around way too much. And then again, the polls last time around were not very helpful in determining the out or at least uh, forecasting the outcome. Well, mobs continue to tear Seattle apart as police step aside. Uh, Sohab Armani says that it really is far, far past time for a harsh crackdown against the forces of anarchy in the Pacific Northwest. It's not that hard for the government to figure out who these people are and break them in the name of order. They just won't. Meanwhile, a twice looted store owner in Chicago is suing the city. San Francisco Chronicle says a staggering number of citizens are exiting San Francisco. Online real estate company Zillow released new statistics, shining a stark light on the light rather on the issue this week. Their 2020 urban suburban market report reveals that inventory has risen a whopping 96 percent year on year, and as uh, empty homes in the city flood the market like nowhere else in America. 
And New York is also witnessing record vacancies as residents escape the mess there. Well, the mother who is seeking to turn her eight-year-old boy into a girl has been given sole custody. From the story, this mother who's been attempting to gender transition her eight-year-old son into a girl has been awarded decision-making powers regarding her son's health care and schooling, essentially reversing a previous ruling that granted the father co-parenting rights. And Democratic Congresswoman has called for more unrest in the streets. Squad member Ayanna Presley said there needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives, end quote. And a school district has told kids they can't wear pajama bottoms while learning from home or slippers or hats while in a Zoom classroom in Springfield, Illinois. Meanwhile, Bethany Mandel looks at the exodus from public schools to private and homeschooling during this whole period. You can find that report on Ricochet. No slippers, no hats, uh, no uh, pajama bottoms. Now, that would rule out most adults who are in Zoom meetings all across the country on a regular basis. I saw what I thought was one of the funniest commercials to date on the subject. Um, A couple of um, couples meet in the um, family room of one of their homes and the the husband of the homeowner uh, walks out. He's wearing his underclothing and a shirt and his uh, socks. And he's looking around and everyone is mortified as they're looking at him. And he says, (laughs) says to them, oh, I thought this was a Zoom thing. He had forgotten to, to you know, wear pants because in Zoom meetings, you can wear whatever you want. But I think that's kind of the point that the school is making. You need to be prepared for serious learning. Get dressed. That's the point they're making. But then again, that might also apply to some adults who have forgotten through this um, Zoom culture to wear pants. He was not just my brother. He was my best friend. Robert Trump, younger brother of President Donald Trump, has died the president recalling his brother. Joe Biden and Taylor Swift are embracing a bizarre USPS conspiracy. The Postal Service conspiring to rig the election. We'll talk more about the concerns later in the program. First, we need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our second hour, I'll share an interview with Katie Reed. She's the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done, the book published by Waterbrook. We'll also talk about the uh, legal battle won by John MacArthur and his church. Pastor MacArthur has, in defiance of California's governor, resumed services. We'll find out what the uh, uh, what the judiciary had to say about that later in the second hour of today's program. Well, Nevada sent more than 200,000 mail-in primary ballots to the wrong address, according to the Washington Free Beacon, and 28 million mail-in ballots went missing in the last four elections. Real Clear Politics points out. Well, the Biden-Harris ticket aims to spark enthusiasm at the convention after a low-key campaign, and Trump's failure on COVID-19 will be a central message of the Biden convention, making that case. The Black Lives Matter movement is expected to play elevated roles at the uh, convention sort of toned-down convention, and Kamala Harris brings gun confiscation support to the presidential ticket. Well, tensions linger between the Biden and Obama camps, with some saying they don't um, underestimate Joe's ability to mess things up. And that's a quote, by the way. They used a different word, but there you have it. A federal appeals court ruled that law-evading Hillary Clinton does not have to testify in the lawsuit over her emails. And the uh, Government Accounting Office, or GAO, has ruled that the Department of Homeland Security Secretary and Deputy are not valid office holders. 
A Hawaii beach property linked to uh, President Obama, a climate alarmist, bypasses coastal protection laws. Some are alarmed by that. And Portland protests turned violent over the weekend with a brutal assault caught on video. More than 60 911 calls went unanswered during the Portland, Portland riot as well. Well, the president has threatened to intervene in the Big Apple after another violent weekend saw 50 people shot and seven killed. Costs from weeks of protests are taking a financial toll on cash-strapped cities, including my own. South Dakota turned down an extra $300 a week unemployment benefit from the Trump administration. And Iowa requests nearly $4 billion in disaster aid after the storm damaged or destroyed 13 million acres of corn. Japan was hit by its biggest economic slump on record in the second quarter. And in a head-turner, the notorious Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down California's ban on high-capacity magazines, saying restrictions violate the Second Amendment. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo inks a deal to support more U.S. troops in Poland. Well, on this day in history, more than 1,400 meat packers walked off the job at the um, uh, George A. Hormel and Company main plant in Austin, Minnesota, in a bitter strike that lasted just over a year. 1987, Rudolf Hess, the last member of Adolf Hitler's inner circle, died at Sandow Prison at age 93, an apparent suicide. 1996, on this day in history, the Reform Party announces Rose, or rather Ross Perot has been selected to be the first ever presidential nominee, opting for the third party's founder over challenger Richard Lamb. On this day in history, 1998, President Bill Clinton gives grand jury testimony via closed circuit television from the White House concerning his relationship with an intern. He then delivered a TV address in which he denies previously committing perjury, admits his relationship was inappropriate and criticizes Kenneth Starr's investigation. On this day in history, 2014, U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder orders a federal medical examiner to perform another autopsy on the remains of Michael Brown, a black Missouri teenager whose fatal shooting by a white police officer spurred violent protests and heated national debate over race relations. 2018, Tesla CEO Elon Musk, in an interview with the New York Times, says he's been overwhelmed by job stress and admission that pushes down the stock value of the electric car company and brings pressure on its board to take action. Shares of Tesla tumble about 9%. Finally, on this day in history 2019, President Trump says his administration is giving major consideration to designating the Antifa movement a terrorist organization, as the city of Portland was preparing for dueling weekend protests between right-wing demonstrators and the far left. That was 2019. Well, as mentioned, Portland protests turned violent with a brutal assault caught on video. It erupted late Sunday, just blocks from the federal courthouse after the driver of a pickup truck crashed, was reportedly pulled from the vehicle and then brutally beaten by a mob after a confrontation with protesters. Video that emerged from the scene was chilling. The man identified as the driver could be seen getting punched, kicked and ordered not to leave in the middle of the city street. The man in the video at one point appeared dazed after the initial assault, but suffered the worst blow when he absorbed a roundhouse kick to the side of his head. Portland police say that in an email that officers responded to a report of an injured person at Southwest Broadway and Taylor at about 10.30 p.m. Sergeant Kevin Allen, a police spokesperson, said the reports indicate that protesters were chasing the truck before it crashed and they assaulted the driver after the crash. 
He said responding officers encountered a hostile crowd and the squad from the rapid response team responded to help secure the scene while the investigation was underway. One of the videos posted to social media begins with a man on his knees in the city street surrounded by a group of people. He tries to get up and someone yells, you're not leaving, bro, and he gets pushed back to the ground. At one point, the man on the ground says that he was not trying to hurt anyone and while kneeling, absorbed several punches because the group was unconvinced that he was telling the truth. They look like um, the crowd looks like it's about to disperse, but that's when another individual takes a running start and kicks the man in the head, which could be heard slamming into the pavement, according to the video. Andy No, a journalist who has been covering these protests, reported that the man crashed his car and the mob pulled him out and beat him senseless in front of the passenger. He's bleeding and unconscious. No police. Another reporter posted a video that purports to show the driver earlier harassed by protesters and his female passenger assaulted. Drew Hernandez reported that that the driver sped off to evade the protesters. And the rest now is national news. Robert Trump, younger brother of President Donald Trump, died on Saturday night. The White House confirmed in a statement from the president he was 71. It is with heavy heart I share that my wonderful brother Robert peacefully passed away tonight, the president wrote. He was not just my brother, he was my best friend. He will be greatly missed, but we will meet again. His memory will live on in my heart forever. Robert, I love you. Rest in peace. The president had traveled to New York on Friday to visit his ailing brother. A senior administration official had said the president has a very good relationship with his brother, and his brother is very special to him. Robert, who died just 11 days before what would have been his 72nd birthday, had reportedly spent more than a week in the intensive care unit at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City earlier this summer. Robert Trump is the president's youngest brother and the youngest of the five Trump siblings. Marianne Trump Barry, 83, a retired federal judge. Fred Trump Jr., who died in 1981 at the age of 43. Donald Trump, 74, who is in the middle. Elizabeth Trump Grau, 78, a retired bank executive. And then Robert. Like his president brother, Robert Trump joined the family business and was a top executive at the Trump Organization. The tribute in light, the 9-11 memorial, will happen after all. This week, New York City said the tribute to the victims who died on September 11, 2001, would be canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic. But on Saturday, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said the state will provide the support needed for the art installation. Uh, NYS uh, will provide health personnel and supervision so that September 11th memorial hashtag can mount the tribute in light safely. Cuomo announced on Twitter, I am glad that we can continue this powerful tribute to those who lost on 9-11 and to the heroism of all New Yorkers. We will hashtag never forget. He said that former Mayor uh, Mike Bloomberg would provide support for the memorial. And Americans who get their news through social media are the least informed and are easily deceived. Well, that's what a new survey says. Um, Uh, The mistake is assuming that a deluge of information means that we are better informed. Well, not at all. In fact, a new report by Pew Research found that what they called extremely online people, meaning those who rely primarily on social media for their political news, are among the least informed and most easily deceived groups in America. Reason.com described these findings this way. Analyzing polls conducted from October of the of last year through June 2020, Pew found that just 8% of U.S. adults who get most of their political views from social media say they're following news about the 2020 election very closely, compared with roughly four times as many among those who uh, turn mostly to cable news and print, 37 and 33 percent, respectively. 
Well, the Pew study also confirmed those self-reports indicated that people were uh, not as well-informed as they thought. Those who relied on a variety of sources, including news, websites, cable, and print news, scored the highest. Interestingly, exclusive Facebook and Twitter users did score higher in their knowledge of conspiracy theories, such as 5G causes of uh, coronavirus or Bill Gates planning to inject people with tracking microchips. In other words, what something someone finds illuminating versus Illuminati largely depends on the amount of time they spend on social media, all of which underscores the fundamental myth of the information age that access to information is the same as knowing and that knowing about something is the same thing as wisdom. In one of the choruses from the play The Rock, T.S. Eliot asked, where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? He wrote that in 1934. What would he say about the information deluge of today? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Joe Biden, Taylor Swift, members of Congress and the corporate media are embracing a bizarre conspiracy theory. The President Donald Trump is having the U.S. Postal Service mailboxes removed in an effort to obstruct mail-in voting in the upcoming presidential election. Well, the hoax spread after pictures of local USPS boxes being removed went viral on social media. They're going around literally with tractor trailers picking up mailboxes, Biden said at a virtual fundraiser. Um, You ought to go online and check out what they're doing in Oregon. I mean, it's bizarre, he says. Well, according uh, to an investigation by KATU and others, the White House's had nothing to do with the removal. The local USPSs are simply replacing old boxes with new ones. Postal Service spokesman Steve Doherty told Boston.com that removing the boxes is standard procedure when they become rusted, require paint, get vandalized, or simply need to be replaced. These trucks are on the streets daily, he says, uh, the flatbeds seen hauling the mailboxes. They're part of our field maintenance fleet. Now, the U.S. Postal Service has also been long mismanaged. Government reports during both Republican and Democrat presidential administrations have shown the USPS, which is supposed to be self-funded instead of receiving bailouts from Congress, has been overspending for years, largely on its oversized pensions. It has for years avoided dealing with its well-known financial problems. The reality didn't stop celebrities, politicians and media figures, however, from jumping aboard this latest anti-Trump conspiracy train. Former President Barack Obama took the opportunity to swipe at the current administration, not only for the long history of mismanagement of the Postal Service that persisted during his administration, but also for Trump's handling of the Wuhan virus. Any excuse during a campaign year. I mean, there's plenty to be opposed to is just be accurate about what's actually uh, happening. If you don't like a, a politician opposed what they're actually doing rather than fabricating it uh, it undermines credibility well the u.s uh, uh, postal service mail trucks is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to conspiracy notions about the postal service so i wanted to spend some time talking about what uh, what's true and what's false about what's being uh, said a lot of fear and misinformation has been spreading throughout social media the past few days about the post office. People seem to think the sky is falling, but they're missing a lot of important context, and we'll try to provide at least some of that here. Now, one of the first uh, facts that we're hearing is the U.S. Constitution creates the post office and requires Congress to fund it. 
Well, the truth is that's false. Several people seem to be under the misbelief that the Constitution mandates the existence or funding of the Postal Service, the U.S. Postal Service. Well, the Constitution does mention the Postal Service in a sense, but doesn't create the post office or require its funding. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 7 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to establish post offices and post roads. It requires nothing. It merely permits Congress to do so if Congress so chooses. Now, the clause gives Congress the ability to create post offices and implied authority to create and provide services through the United States Postal Service and Congress has. So that's the fact. Another fact that we're hearing out there is the United States Postal Service relies on Congress for funding. Well, the truth is that's False. The Postal Service is an independent agency that's almost exclusively self-funded and has been since 1971. Now, it may receive some small appropriations for public service costs and revenue foregone. That's how they refer to it. Now, public service costs are reimbursement to the Postal Service for public service costs that are incurred by its providing a maximum degree of effective and regular postal service nationwide and communities where post offices may not be deemed self-sustaining. And you can go to the statutes for that. Now, they can request an appropriation for public service costs of up to $460 million annually. However, the Postal Service has not requested or received this reimbursement rather since 1982. Revenue foregone, the other phrase, is funding provided to subsidize the mailing costs of groups such as the blind, overseas absentee voters, and so on. Now, under the Revenue Foregone Reform Act, Uh, The Postal Service was supposed to receive about $29 million in appropriations every year from 1994 through 2035, but for most years, that funding has not actually been appropriated. Now, for context, the Postal Service revenue for the fiscal year ending 2019 was $71.1 billion. So those payments would make up less than 7% of the Postal Service revenue, even if the agency did receive that payment. But the U.S. Postal Service has asked this year for an emergency appropriation from Congress, and um, that's part of the discussion you're hearing now. Here's another truth. U.S. Postal Service is in financial distress and will be insolvent before the November 2020 election. Well, true about distress, insolvency is off by about 10 months, and this has been the case for many, many years. Well, the U.S. Postal Service is in a financial bind. The agency has had a net loss for most of the last several years. This is because the demand for shipping letters and flats, large envelopes, newsletters, and so on, has declined steadily for about two decades. Now, the costs for shipping letters and flats, however, have not declined as much. Less revenue with the same cost has resulted in the Postal Service financial losses, and those losses are legendary. Well, COVID-19 has exacerbated these issues even further. Mail volume has dropped while expenses like the PPE increased, um, so much so that the Postal Service sought a $50 billion emergency fund and uh, the authority to borrow another $25 billion from the Treasury. Now, this was contemplated for the CARES Act that addresses so many of the COVID-19-induced financial crises. The Postal Service estimated in the spring that they would have an estimated $13 billion budget shortfall compared to $9 billion shortfall in fiscal year 2019. So they already had a $9 billion shortfall predicted. Now it's up to 13. But we now know the U.S. Postal Service will survive at least a little longer. Now, while their income is still not what it needs to be, the increases online 
I should say, in online shopping during COVID-19 has helped to stay uh, above water, and the Treasury made a $10 billion loan available. Now, in its fiscal quarter report filed in June, the Postal Service indicated that it has sufficient liquidity to continue operating through at least August of 2021. So the U.S. Postal Service is in a critical condition, has been for many years, but it does not appear that it will shut down before the November election or uh, that its services will be uh, hampered. Here's another of the uh, truths that one can read out there. The U.S. Postal Service is in distress because it is required to pre-fund retiree pensions and health benefits. Well, that is Mostly true, but that's not the only reason. Now, this is a pervasive uh, half-truth. The Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act of 2006 required the Postal Service to pre-fund future retiree health benefits, not pension, though. Now, previously, like most agencies, it funded those benefits on a pay-as-you-go basis. The benefit is claimed, then they pay the bill. Instead, the U.S. Postal Service was supposed to pay 5 to $6 billion per year from 2007 until 2017 into a retiree health benefit fund that's supposed to cover retirees' health benefits for over 50 years. Well, the idea is that pre-funding those benefits ensures that the benefits get paid even if the U.S. Postal Service does go into crisis. Well, the problem is the Postal Service hasn't been paying into the fund since 2012 and didn't even make full payments in every year before that. It was supposed to have completely funded the, uh, the, the program by 2017, yet less than 44 percent of the um, Postal Service uh, actually uh, is covered, was actually funded. Uh, it's become clear the current uh, requirement is not sustainable and is harming the Postal Service financial survival. But despite the dour situation surrounding this uh, program, the payments are not the sole cause of their net losses. Now, remember, the payments were less than $6 billion every year, and payments were supposed to stop in 2017. Um, the task force on the United States Postal Service, which is a group uh, uh, that put together uh, was put together by an executive order of President Trump, um, helps us to understand a bit better where some of these other uh, monies were supposed to come from. Uh, and I, I don't really have the time to go into those details, but you can check with them to indicate um, where some of this other funding is stripping the U.S. Postal Service of its liquidity. Now, we'll get into that maybe on another occasion, but I do need to take a break. And we'll talk about whether or not buying stamps or other merchandise from the Postal Service gift store, for example, can save the post office and whether the new postmaster general is the, a big donor and partisan operative, Louis DeJoy, uh, who should be um, removed, should be uh, forced to testify before Congress and so on. We're talking about the Postal Service and some of what's um, currently on social media suggesting that there's an effort to prevent uh, the election from moving forward by virtue of the U.S. Postal Service. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Katie Reed. She's the author of Made Like Martha Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. We'll also take a look at the court battle over John MacArthur's church, whether or not they can meet legally. We'll let you know the outcome in the second hour of today's program. 
Well, we're talking about the Postal Service, some of the myths surrounding the controversy uh, presently. One of them is buying stamps or other merchandise from the USPS gift store will save the post office. Well, the billions of dollars the post office needs to become financially stable is probably not going to come from profits on their merchandise, assuming there's even enough stock of that merchandise to begin with. In fact, buying stamps is nice, but unless you're throwing those stamps away and buying new ones, When you actually need them, you're not actually increasing their revenue. You're just shifting when they receive the money. Rather than pay for a stamp when you need it in the future, you're paying for it now. So that's not going to contribute. Now, one of the big um, questions is the new Postmaster General uh, is uh, a big donor and partisan operative, Louis DeJoy. Well, the answer is true. Louis DeJoy is a large donor to President Trump and the Republican National Committee. Now, that shouldn't come as much of a surprise as most Appointments do have some connection to the once candidate, but Louis DeJoy is a large donor to the president and the RNC, but Trump is not the first president to put a large donor in a key position. I know you're shocked to hear that. It's also worth noting that DeJoy is the first postmaster general in two decades who has not risen through the ranks of the U.S. Postal Service in some other capacity before being appointed to that position. DeJoyce, uh, to his credit, he does have a long career in logistics and operations, which is the key area of expertise needed to manage the expansive, complex network of our mailing system. And then what about this? The appointment of DeJoy was entirely Trump's choice alone without any checks or balances. Well, the answer to that statement is false. The Postmaster General is selected by the Board of Governors. The Board of Governors is appointed by the President with the advice and consent of the Senate. No more than five of the ten governors may be from the same party. There are currently multiple vacancies on the board, and the time that DeJoy was appointed, three were Republican, one was Democrat. DeJoy was unanimously selected by that board. DeJoy was appointed in early May, did not fully transition into the position until June, and addition Democrats and an additional Democrat, rather, and an additional Republican have been appointed since then. And then what about this? The U.S. Postal Service just started having those problems since DeJoy started. Well, that's half true. The U.S. Postal Service has definitely been experiencing some problems with uh, service lately, and um, some specific allegations uh, have been raised. But the U.S. Postal Service service uh, woes can't be entirely attributed to this one man and his policies. Now, many communities, for example, experienced significant delays and even some non-deliveries during their primary elections this year, long before DeJoy took his role. Issues have ranged from changing operations to avoid COVID-19 spread, workforce shortage due to COVID-19 quarantines and illnesses, working out kinks of handling mail voting where it's new or increased uh, substantially, and managing the influx of packages due to increased online shopping. Now, there's also uh, there's been some change to delivery policies since July that have showed slowed uh, service. Rather, these changes were put into place by DeJoy. However, they generally fall into a few categories, staying on schedule, no overtime, no errors, no duplicate work. Now, these elements aren't the recipe for disaster. Uh, To the contrary, they're the main ingredient of staying organized and cost efficient. And while people are panicking because the document suggests mail will be left to sit, the document is clear, quoting, 
One aspect of these changes that may be difficult for uh, employees uh, is that temporarily we may see mail left behind, which is not typical. We will address root causes of these delays and adjust the very uh, next day. Any mail left behind must be properly reported and employees should ensure this action is taken with integrity and action. The key word being temporarily. Now, The context of the document supports that mail is not intended to sit for days. A piece of mail may be left behind on one day merely because it's uh, it missed the boat, so to speak, but it will be delivered the next day. And then there's this. Uh, DeJoy fired the whole leadership team at the U.S. Postal Service in a Friday night massacre. The answer? False. Well, this is in reference to the Saturday night massacre when Nixon fired several high-level staffers or forced them to resign in an attempt to cover up the Watergate scandal. Well, DeJoy did make some changes to the leadership of the Postal Service when he became Postmaster General. But leadership changes when there's a new Postmaster General is not unusual. In fact, the previous Postmaster General, Megan Brennan, made her own leadership changes when she took the position in 2015 and made leadership changes again in January of 2019. Now, the Inspector General for the Postal Service, the watchdog who ensures there's no waste, fraud, or corruption, is already opening an investigation and will make the final determination. What are some of the other uh, misgivings? The U.S. Postal Service is destroying mail, sorting machines used to sort the mail in the ballots. So, um, again, one of the charges, the U.S. Postal Service was destroying mail, sorting machines used to sort mail in ballots. True, but likely for cost-efficient reasons, and this also has reportedly stopped. So, yes, the U.S. Postal Service is deactivating mail sorting machines that sort some types of mail, including mail ballots. Some of these are being relocated, but there does appear to be an outright reduction going on with the remainder being dismantled. But despite the the phrasing by... um, uh, some that the documentation shows plans to hobble mail sorting. The intention doesn't appear to be to slow the sorting of mail. Um, Now, in one of the critics, uh, Vice uh, does have the good sense to uh, note that the plan to reorganize and right-size the sorting machines is dated May 15th, a month before DeJoy took office and less than a week after the Board of Governors announced his selection. So this was not initiated by the current postmaster. Not only that, but the documents show that earlier deadlines were missed and gives extended deadlines, which implies that this plan had already been around for quite some time. It did not originate with this postmaster. And other facts back the reasoning of the plan. The type of mail these machines sort is decreasing in volume, including down more than 15% just this year compared to last year. In other words, they have uh, less mail to sort than ever uh, ever before, and it's far from clear how much of that mail is ever coming back. So it stands to reason the Postal Service might not need as many of them. So that's the the response that began to that decline uh, sometime before this current postmaster. Now, the necessity and prior existence of this plan is further enforced by the Inspector General's September 2019 report on processing network optimization. The report describes how the Postal Service has been trying and failing to consolidate processing and right-size infrastructure in order to reduce costs. In fact, the issue has been researched since as early as 2012 by the Government Accountability Office, and the volume of mail has only declined further since then. Now, the action also aligns with a five-year strategic plan that was published before DeJoy was even selected, continuously optimized location of network processing operations and equipment as mail volumes decline and parcel volumes increase. Now, postal workers argue that the Postal Service should keep the machines but not use them if the off chances that they're needed or parts can be used to fix the ones that are being used. 
there is some reasoning to to that. Um, but again, this is uh, has nothing to do with a long range plan that DeJoy happens to be overseeing at this point. Additionally, CNN reports that on Jake Tapper's State of the Union show, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said sorting machines between now and Election Day will not be taken offline. Meadows has no role in the USPS, but I presume the president's chief of staff is being updated on news items receiving national attention. And what about this? The U.S. Postal Service told election officials that voters' ballots won't arrive in time to be counted. True, but not in the way that you think. This one is mostly a miscommunication issue. The Postal Service has warned 46 states about how it can handle election mail. But the letters are an attempt to preserve the election rather than undermine it. Now, time does not permit me to go into more detail on that. But I think it's important to note that context um, and an understanding of what's actually happening rather than the political exploitation of, of events is a wiser way to go. You can certainly oppose a politician, but at least I think we all owe it to all of them, whichever side of the aisle we're on, to be fair about what's actually happening rather than jump on the, uh, the bandwagon in social media to suggest that this is, in fact, a conspiracy worth um, repeating. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. Later in the five o'clock hour, we'll hear from Katie Reed, author of Made Like Martha, good news for the woman who gets things done. We'll also bring you up to date on what happened in the legal challenge to uh, John MacArthur's church. Pastor MacArthur's church can worship on Sunday with singing, no attendance cap, according to a judge's ruling. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We'll hear from Katie Reed. She's the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. We'll also let you know what happened in the court case involving Grace Church um, that was granted the um, freedom to worship, sing, without restrictions on the number of congregants. That's coming up later this hour as well. Well, today marks the opening of the... Uh, Democrats National Convention. They kick off the convention. Unified is the emphasis. But the question is, can a virtual convention generate any excitement? Uh, Republican uh, Governor Kasich uh, says, I'm conservative and I will make the case for Biden. He'll be speaking. More Republicans have been added to the program. And the more progressive wing of the party said, we will certainly tolerate them speaking at the convention, although there's a little bit of frustration that AOC gets one minute while Kasich and others are getting much more time. We'll tolerate them, but we will not tolerate them as part of a Biden administration. And there's the rise of the rage moms. Well, unlike the 2016 convention, Democrats are kicking off their national convention unified, at least for now. Bernie Sanders' presidential bid is a distant memory. Tom Perez's job is safe. And a virtual national convention this week is expected to proceed relatively smoothly. What difference four years makes for the Democrats? Well, a political party whose divisions were their most visible and visceral at the start of their last convention in 2016 begins this year's event in a much different place with its internal conflicts quieted, and it helps that it's virtual rather than uh, people present and uh, protesting, uh, in favor of a unified front committed to denying President Donald Trump a second term. There's a unity of purpose and a single-mindedness about the need to defeat Trump that transcends what we saw in 2016. Brian Fallon, a former national press secretary for Hillary Clinton's campaign, says, when people thought they could assume Trump was going to lose and we could afford to fight about other things, that's not the case now. Well, indications of internal dissent are still 
still likely at this week's convention, most notably when hundreds of progressive delegates are expected to vote against the party's official policy platform because, among other reasons, it doesn't support single-payer health care. Some liberal leaders also question whether the unity, aided by the widely uh, held perception that Joe Biden's campaign is going well, can last over the next two and a half months. If polls tighten and activists begin to more openly question the presumptive nominee's strategy and messaging. But the difference between the onset of this year's convention and the convention four years ago is stark. A day before the last convention held in July in Philadelphia, the chairwoman, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, announced that she would resign from her post after the publication of hacked emails called into question the committee's neutrality during the primary between Sanders and Clinton. Now, the emails and resignation in turn fueled Sanders supporters at the convention who loudly protested throughout the week that the primary had been rigged in favor of Clinton. Sanders' campaign, unlike this year, lasted through June, a month before the start of the DNC, making his bid fresh in the minds of his supporters. The dissent reached a crescendo during many of the convention speeches when a small but vocal group of supporters, many of them seated with a California delegation, chanted during the speeches, occasionally interrupting them. Media coverage of the convention fixated on the apparent internal division. The 2020 uh, DNC, which is originally uh, was originally set to take place in Milwaukee, uh, but will now be conducted digitally because of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, won't offer Biden detractors a similar opportunity at public opposition. And, uh, of course, uh, many of the speeches will be pre-recorded. There's not going to be the audience, the excitement that comes along with this kind of convention. Well, the question is, uh, will the conventions um, be able to generate the kind of excitement and interest? Well, the, in addition to Biden's official nomination and acceptance, several notable political figures are slated to participate in this um, uh, convention, which uh, will be largely virtual while anchored in Milwaukee. It's scheduled to take place the 17th through the 20th. The former vice president is set to speak on the final night of the uh, event from the, his home, uh, home state of Delaware. Now, the Democratic National Committee has announced that the, the convention will kick off today with speakers, including Biden's primary opponents, Senators Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, former First Lady Michelle Obama, former Ohio Governor John Kasich, a staunch critic of President Trump who ran against him in the 2016 primary race. Tuesday's lineup includes former President uh, Bill Clinton, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, uh, former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, former Secretary of State John Kerry, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, although I understand her pre-recorded remarks will last one minute. Um, back in January, she had distanced herself from Biden, telling the New York Magazine that in any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party, but in America, we are. When asked at the time how she would fit in with the uh, possible Biden administration, her initial response was, Oh, Lord, although she used different words. Uh, Wednesday speakers are scheduled to include House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, former President Barack Obama. There's also a spot uh, for the as yet, um, well, it has now been announced, uh, as yet heard from in her capacity as vice presidential running mate, um, uh, Kamala Harris. The convention concludes with appearances by Biden's primary opponent, Senator Cory Booker, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg and others. With the convention mere um, moments away, Biden is reportedly going to reveal his running mate and uh, did at a much shorter window than we've seen in the past.
by any other convention uh, political standard, the uh, Democrats are sacrificing something by holding their convention virtually. That will be true for the Republicans as well. And events on the ground, of course, dictate that this is how it's to be done. There won't be uh, television shots of energetic crowds chanting the candidates' names. There won't be opportunity for Biden and his running mate to test which issues um, and applause lines get the people out of their seats. But there's also won't be an opportunity for the voters to take a good hard look at the violence and unrest gripping many American cities. In any other year, Democrats uh, could rightly ups, uh, upset um, uh, their in-person convention, could be upset by uh, those who oppose them. In August of 2020, they should count themselves lucky to be sitting behind screens. As Biden, Kamala Harris, and other prominent members of the party address voters from their houses this week, they won't be accosted by um, uh, radicals convinced that the nomination was once again stolen from uh, Bernie Stan- Sanders, who has been quite outspoken in favor of Biden. Uh, they won't have to confront the increasingly violent minority who believe the entire party should be burned down along with the rest of American institutions. There will be no opportunity for the rioting that shook Chicago during the 1968 convention and may have led to at least uh, to, uh, in some part, to the election of Richard Nixon. Uh, The office seekers are not just avoiding the kind of uh, normally political rioting that's um, wrecked downtown Portland and Chicago in recent years. They are also avoid the surge of in indiscriminate um, violent crimes that has swept through the nation's great cities, many of whom are headed by those who will be featured or attending the convention. So this is going to be something other than what we have uh, ever seen before in terms of a virtual convention. Some of the numbers... According to the Washington Post, ABC News, Biden and Harris hold double digit leads over Trump and Pence uh, as they kick off their convention uh, today. The mood is cautious optimism. In the latest poll, um, Senator Kamala Harris is leading uh, Trump and Vice President, I should say Biden and his running mate, leading uh, Trump and Vice President Pence by 53 percent to 41 percent among registered voters. Biden and Harris lead by 54 percent to 43 percent among those who say they are absolutely certain to vote and who also uh, reported voting in 2016. Uh, The president's supporters are more eager than are Biden's to cast ballots for him, with nearly nine in 10 calling themselves enthusiastic and 65 percent saying they are very enthusiastic. Slightly more than eight in 10 Biden supporters say they're enthusiastic about voting for him, with 48% saying they are very enthusiastic. The motivations of the Trump and Biden supporters remain starkly different, with the president motivating both groups. Almost three in four who support Trump say that they're casting an affirmative vote for the president rather than to oppose Biden. Among those backing Biden, six in 10 say that they're voting mainly to oppose Trump rather than mainly to support the presumptive Democratic nominee. A majority of Americans, 54%, say that they approve of Biden's selection of Harris as his running mate, although views diverge significantly along partisan lines. And Americans say that Harris and Pence are qualified to assume the presidency should that be necessary. Asked about the qualifications of the pair to assume the presidency if that were required, the findings are identical. 54% saying that they thought each was qualified to take over the highest office in the land should they be called upon to do so. And finally, Biden holds an advantage in many of the key battleground states that are likely to determine the outcome in November. Biden has an edge of seven points in states that were decided by five points or fewer in 2016, the margin well within the range of sampling error. Now, one caution, as you'll recall in 2016, 
Hillary Clinton pretty much had it in the bag. And we also heard a survey about a couple of weeks ago indicating that upwards of 65 percent of Americans are unwilling to honestly answer questions about what they intend to do in the election out of fear of uh, backlash. So it's uh, very difficult to look at these polls without at least some modicum of suspicion given those factors. Up next, we're going to hear from Katie Reed. She's the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Women Who Get Things Done. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In just a moment, we'll talk with Katie Reed. That's who we're talking with, Katie Reed. She's the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman uh, Who Gets Things Done. We'll get her on the line in just a moment. Um, Karen Emmon, who is with Proverb 31 Ministries, says this of the book. Are you a doer, one who loves to check things off her daily re- uh, to accomplish list? Are you uh, are your desires to be productive and your confident, capable ways often subtly or even uh, overtly slammed by others? Maybe you uh, you feel less spiritual than your laid back, easygoing friends. Well, she makes reference to Made Like Martha. It's going to infuse your life with a fresh perspective as you learn to embrace your God-given personality and also discover how and when to rest and retreat. So we're looking forward to talking with uh, the author of that book, Katie Reed, in just a few moments as we're getting her on the phone right now. It would be difficult to find an American Christian woman who's not struggled to be more like Mary, the Christ follower who sat at Jesus' feet, while her overworked sister Martha labored in the kitchen. Well, this often quoted Bible story from Luke 10 seems to suggest that wanting to serve, achieve, and accomplish things as Martha did was wrong. But is that the case? As a modern-day Martha herself, my next guest is a blogger and author. Katie Reed asks in her new book, Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done, what if there's nothing wrong with being a Martha after all? What if God simply wants us to live out... um, uh, who he created us to be from a place of settledness rather than of striving. Well, she draws on biblical examples and contemporary stories to remind women that they are beloved daughters of God, not because of what they do or don't do, but because of what Jesus has done for them, for us. In Made Like Martha, she challenges readers to look more deeply at the story so that they can receive true change in their heart, even as they serve and work as the doers God has created them to be. Now, for those of you who are doers, take a big collective sigh of relief. Well, Katie Reed is a firstborn overachiever and a modern day Martha. She is an avid blogger at Katie Reed. And by the way, that's reid.com, katiereed.com. She provides posts, articles, letters, and other resources to try hard women. Um, uh, on an ongoing basis, she encourages others to unwind in God's presence through her writing, as well as through her speaking, as they find grace in the unraveling life. She has published articles with a focus on the family, I believe, Crosswalk, uh, Mops, Encourage, that's spelled I Encourage, God Size Dreams, and many other websites. She's also a contributing writer for IBelieve.com and Lightworkers.com, and has been syndicated on ForEveryMom.com. She is a devoted wife of a youth pastor and a homeschooling mother of five who resides in the middle of Michigan. She joins us today to talk about her much needed book, Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's it's not possible to be the mother of uh, so many, a wife and a mother, and to uh, be married to a youth pastor without being someone who gets things done. So I appreciate uh, that you have written to those of us who feel that we're more like Martha, but it felt like maybe we're, we're missing the mark because uh, that's who we tend to be. 
That's right. Yeah, you know, Martha's fantastic. And those of us that are made like her are as well, but for so long, man, we felt guilty. At least I have when I read that Luke 10 passage when Jesus, you know, kind of has to have a little talking to with Martha. Well, I really appreciate that you encourage us to revisit that portion of Scripture, which we'll do in just a few moments. But why do you think the story of Mary and Martha in the 10th chapter of Luke causes so many of us to feel guilty if we relate more to Martha than perhaps Mary? Well, you know, here's Martha. Jesus is in her home. I'm sure there were other people there. She's trying to get everything ready. She's frustrated with Mary. She needs some help. And I so badly wanted Jesus to say, hey, Mary, go help Martha. She's, she's stressed out. Right? We all know that's not what he says, right? He tells her she's worried and distracted about many things. And so I think for centuries, those of us that are made like her have felt guilty because you know, not only does Jesus say, hey, you know, you're so worried and distracted, but then he also says, Mary has chosen the good thing, you know, the better part in the situation. And so it kind of is a double whammy, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that there's been messages from the pulpit and there's been books that have kind of elevated Mary to star status. And a lot of us that are wired like Martha have felt like we're, you know, something must be wrong with us if we relate to her. And so I really wanted to take a closer look at what's really going on here and where have we kind of added things to the story that really aren't there. Yeah. You um, point out that we usually assume that Jesus is criticizing Martha for working too hard, but instead it's uh, more of an invitation to walk in freedom instead of fretting. Absolutely. And, you know, Ivan hypothesized that, you know, what if he wasn't even, you know, alluding to that she needed to sit down physically in this moment? I mean, sure, we all need rest, you know, but unless she was going to, you know, cook, no one was going to eat unless Jesus was fasting (laughs) or unless he's going to multiply the loaves and fishes again, you know, just wasn't going to happen on its own. So I think he was really inviting her to take a seat spiritually within, even while her hands are busy. And I think the way we do that is to really know who God is and who we are in light of him. And for a lot of my life, and I kind of hypothesize that maybe Martha was in this place too, of striving and trying to earn God's love instead of serving from a place where we already understand we have that love, not because of what we do, but because we're his. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, what drew you to write a book about the story of Mary and Martha? I think we can almost guess because many of us wish we had written that book, but what inspired you? Well, like I said, I, I identify so strongly with Martha, you know, responsible, getting things done. I love my to-do list and even more love to check things off it. And so I think, like I said, this passage just frustrated me, you know, because it it didn't go how I wanted it to, but I believe the Bible's true and that there's something for us to learn here. But one thing I started discovering is that, yes, Jesus pointed out something that Martha needed to work on in this isolated incident, but he wasn't criticizing her whole person, you know, the totality of who she was. He was pointing out one thing for her to work on. And I think those of us that are wired like Martha, we work so hard and we do so much that at least for me, when someone points out something I need to work on, it can be debilitating because it's like, 
I work so hard all the time, and now here's something else I have to work on. And so I think we've gotten kind of like, oh, man, well, I just shouldn't be this way. But that's not what God was saying. He was inviting her, you know, go ahead and serve Martha. I'm, I'm adding here, you know, paraphrasing. Go ahead and serve Martha. But you can do it from a place of peace and not fret because it's okay if this doesn't all happen perfectly, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just think that there was, and I think his correction was out of love because later on in John, we see it says Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And for some reason, I had overlooked that. You know, I knew he loved Mary loud and clear, but I thought he was, you know, used to think he was annoyed with Martha, but he loved her. And, you know, God disciplines those he loves, just like, you know, with my child. Like, if they're doing something that's not the best for them, I'm going to point that out because I love them. And I think there was a tenderness in this exchange. I used to read it like, Martha, Martha, you know, get your act together. But I think it was more of like, Martha. Martha, a comforting, a, a deep breath kind of moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just wonder the expression on her face, maybe the perspiration uh, that that she that she had, just gave him an, uh, that sense that no, you can just relax in what you're doing. <laughs> you know, it's a very different right. feeling than man. What's wrong with you? Come on, stop it. Um, you write in your book, uh, Made Like Martha, that many of us assume that God is mad at us, uh, that he's disappointed in us. How have you found healing in your life from that assumption that you're just wired the wrong way and you ought to be like somebody else? Yeah. Well, for so long, you know, I was wearing myself out, trying to keep God and everybody else happy because I was afraid if I stopped doing or if I stopped being practically perfect in every way, that, you know, either people would leave or they wouldn't, you know, love me anymore. And it was this real skewed view. You know, I was trying to be perfect instead of acknowledging, wow. I mean, I knew I wasn't perfect, but I kept trying to get there, you know. And the good news is that, man, Jesus came to be that perfection for us. And if we believe in him by faith, he died on the cross, rose for our sins, he lives within us. Not only does he sit on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God, but he's given us his Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And for so long, I lived like he was company to impress, not family to enjoy. Mm. And when I started realizing, like, hey, he lives here. You know, he's not someone that's coming and I've got to have my act all together. He lives here. And the people that live here, my home, you know, there's a comfort, you know, if you're in a healthy upbringing of being home, you know, of just putting those PJ pants on, you know, and just having that kind of deep breath moment. And um, I want to have a relationship with God like that. Sure, he is powerful, but he's also personal. But we don't have to do this act for him. In Christ, we can have peace because he has done the greatest to do of all time. I love the comparison to someone who's visiting and someone who lives there, because it's true when visitors come, we make sure all the dust bunnies are at least not visible. When when we live together, there's a relaxed feeling about how things are. Uh, and that's that's a much better description of our relationship with Christ and him dwelling within us. Yeah, great illustration. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon uh, with the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. Katie Reed is my guest and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Continuing my conversation with Katie Reed, author of Made Like Martha, good news for the woman who gets things done. Now, you make a comparison between uh, Satan's twisting of God's words to Eve in Genesis and our interpretation of Jesus' words to Martha. Tell us a bit uh, about that misinterpretation and how that can really wreak havoc in the heart of a woman who gets things done. Yes. You know, I think a lot of women don't realize that, man, maybe God designed me to be a doer and that this is a good thing indeed. In the Garden of Eden, you know, God had said, don't eat of the knowledge of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, then Satan comes in there and says, did God really say that? And then we know that Eve even adds words to it and says, oh, we can't even touch it. Well, in some ways, the same has happened with this familiar passage in Luke 10, 38 through 42, with Jesus and Mary and Martha. Again, Jesus points out to Martha, you know, you're worried and distracted, but Martha's chosen this better thing. And I think so many of us have heard the message growing up that, you know, good Mary, bad Martha, you know, we need to be more like Mary. Now, we want to choose, you know, our share of the inheritance. We want to choose to connect with the Lord. That's all important. But that doesn't mean that being a doer is bad. In fact, faith without works is dead. And in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we see that God has prepared works for us to do in advance, you know, before we even came to be. And so works are definitely important. But I think the the freedom piece for Martha's is to realize that we don't have to do these things to be worthy. Through Jesus alone are we worthy. And then we can serve and do these things in thanksgiving and because we're so glad we're loved. And I think that differentiation helps us that are more like Martha to not overdo it. When we realize that our worth was you know, because God made us, it was cemented into ourselves before we could even lift a finger or complete a to-do list. My brother has Down syndrome, and he has just as much worth and value as I do in God's eyes. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I'm kind of handicapped in my ability to realize, like, my productivity does not equal value, that my value comes, your value comes, because God made us in his image, from our creator, not because we're so great, you know. And so there's peace that comes from that, because even on our worst day, he still loves us the same. And that can be really freeing for those of us that are made like Martha. Yeah, absolutely. On a more practical level, how can we sit at Jesus' feet, even as we go about our busy day and accomplish the things that God has given us to do? What does that look like? Well, you know, I think about the book by Brother Lawrence. It's an old one called Practicing the Presence of God. Yes. And if I'm getting this right, he was a monk, and he had to wash the dishes. Now, that doesn't seem like a very, you know, spiritual part of being a monk, but it reminds me, just like in church, like someone has to take the trash out, right? It's not going to take itself out. But that when we are have that awareness who God is, who we are in him, we can go and surf in that place of peace and connect with him throughout the day. When we remember that he lives in us, like we talked about, that he's that family to enjoy, we can enjoy him throughout the day, not just when we have a quiet time. And I think that, at least for me, I kind of compartmentalize things like, okay, if I don't have a 
you know, a good quiet time in the morning, then God's upset or he's rolling his eyes at me, you know, but he's not like that. He's a kind and patient father. And of course, he knows what's good for us and prayer and Bible study. Those are important parts of it. But those aren't the things that make us more loved by him. He loves us, period. And I think a real practical way for those of us that are made like Martha to, um, not get into a frenzy is to remember three powerful words that we all know, right? Yes, no, and help. But we want to say yes to God's assignments. I can't tell you how many times I've said yes to other things just so that people would like me or because I felt guilty if I didn't do it. But we can help not overdo things when we say yes to God's assignment. And then we want to say no to guilt and manipulation. You know, sometimes when you're a reliable, dependable person, everyone comes to you to help them. And helping people is a great thing, but there's only so many hours in the day. So we don't want to say yes to things that God isn't leading us to do in that season. Yet the trash shall be taken out, right? I'm not talking about being a diva or anything like that. But then the last one that's really hard for those of us that are made like Martha, is to say help, to ask for help if we're overwhelmed. Um, and to remember that delegation isn't weak, it's wise. And getting other people on board can be a good thing. Yeah. As a modern Martha with five children, which sounds exhausting in and of itself, <laughs> what advice do you have for navigating your to-do list when it comes to parenting? Well, Kind of that delegation piece I was talking mm-hmm. about. You know, our family is very much a team, and my daughter just started the swim team. Um, we've been homeschooling, but she's going to actually go to the public high school this fall, and so her schedule is very demanding right now. And she typically her chores to do the dishes, so we're pitching in and helping get that done because she's in this busy season. There's other times where, you know, when I was writing the book, I was in a really busy season. And so my daughter stepped up and started cooking more. You know, I think it's that team approach that it doesn't rest on one person's shoulders, but we're stronger and better when we're linking arms with one another. Now, for me, that means I have to give up control and it can't be my way or the highway when it comes to how things get done. But I think, at least for me, the more kids I've had, the more I've had to loosen the reins so that I don't drive myself and everyone else crazy. (laughs) Yeah, you have to adjust your expectations somewhat. That's right. That's right. You write about receiving God's grace in the middle of the messes, and maybe this is a good place to ask the question. What do you mean by that? And how do our Martha personalities make us resistant to messes, which can be something of a challenge? Well, I am a recovering perfectionist, and I have a hunch that Martha was a perfectionist as well. You you want everything in its place and everything to have an order. And I was just thinking today, I was getting frustrated about some things. I'm like, why am I so frustrated? I'm like, I think it's because I want everything to be perfect, and it's not going to be. You know, I have small kids. They're going to make messes. That is signs of life in our home, which is a blessing, right? Someday I'll miss the smudges and the, you know, stray toilet paper down the hall. But um, I think, you know, receiving grace in the moment is just to realize, like, perfection is not up to me. You know, perfection resides within me in Jesus Christ. And I'm human. I'm not a machine. 
And I think that can be hard for Martha's to remember. Like, yes, I need to sit down and eat. I need to get a good night's sleep. I will break if I don't take care of myself. And I think that's part of that receiving grace is to say, okay, I am not God. God is on the universe, and he can manage the whole world and my small one much better than I can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, once again, the name of the book is Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. Uh, let me ask you, too, for listeners who are interested in following you, what's the best way to connect? Well, if you go to Katie M, M as in Martha, Read, R-E-I-V dot com, com, or MadeLikeMartha.com. I'd love to connect. And as a gift for your listeners, too, if they go to MadeLikeMartha.com, they can read Chapter 1 for free. So that will give them a taste of the book. And then on Facebook, it's Katie M. Reed. And Instagram and Twitter is Katie underscore M underscore Reed. Would love to connect. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Appreciate it. Again, the book is titled Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. The book is published by Waterbrook. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Pastor John MacArthur, whose Grace Community Church had been holding in-person services in violation of the state's COVID-19 lockdown orders, is celebrating a California court's vindication of their right to hold indoor worship with no cap on attendance or ban on singing. Well, Los Angeles County was seeking a restraining order to stop the pastor from holding any in-person services. Judge James Chaplant, a Los Angeles Superior Court judge on Friday, agreed with MacArthur and the church that it is the county's uh, burden to show why they should be permitted to infringe on the, un- the constitutionally protected rights of churches to freely exercise religion. The Thomas More Society said in a statement, Attorney Jenna Ellis, who's also a Trump campaign advisor and lawyer, called the ruling an historic win. First California court to recognize hashtag church is essential, Ellis tweeted. Well, the church's attorneys argued that the country's demand to comply with COVID-19 restrictions were unreasonable. The church offered uh, to have the congregation comply with face mask wearing and social distancing indoors until the matter could be fully heard. This was stipulated as a more reasonable action. Uh, than that of the county's rush to shut down church services. Well, the judge agreed and set the full hearing for September 4th, ordering the church to have congregants wear masks and social distance between family groups indoors, according to a statement shared with a Christian post. Uh, says um, the pastor of Sun Valley uh, Mega Church, Pastor um, said that I'm very grateful the court has allowed us to meet inside and we are happy for a few weeks to comply and respect what the judge has asked of us because he is allowing us to meet. This vindicates our desire to stay open and serve our people. This also gives us an opportunity to show that we are not trying to be rebellious or unreasonable, but that we will stand firm to protect our church against unreasonable, unconstitutional restrictions, end quote. Well, Ellis, the attorney, said she spoke with the pastor after the hearing. He said uh, his congregation will be happy to comply with the judge's temporary order. This is why John MacArthur is so deeply loved and respected by his congregation and all over the world. He is a gracious and firm leader, and his biblical stand for church being essential has now been rightly validated. Now, the Grace Community Church is standing on the side of the law against these overreaching tyrants, Ellis went on to say, that are defying their oaths of office when they are Uh, commanded, mandated by the Constitution to preserve and protect our right to free exercise of religion. 
Now, the church filed lawsuit against California on Wednesday, and the uh, the county sought to get a restraining order on Thursday. Uh, the suit stated, in part, when many went to the streets to engage in political and peaceful protests purportedly against racism and police brutality, these protesters refused to comply with the pandemic restrictions. Instead of enforcing the public health orders, public officials were all too eager to grant a de facto exception for these favored pro- uh, protesters. California targeted the wrong groups. California first lifted restrictions on gatherings that occurred outdoors, blessed after the uh, fact the illegal conduct of the George Floyd protesters. California then banned singing in worship services and then shut them all down unless they could modify their service to operate identically uh, to the now legal protests. We will obey God rather than men, MacArthur said um, in a recent video statement. We're going to be faithful to the Lord and we're going to leave the results to him. Whatever happens is going to be what he allows to happen. But he will be on our side because He will. Uh, we will be obedient and faithful to his word. He went on to add that we will not bow to Caesar. The Lord Jesus Christ is our king. Well, Grace Community Church initially complied with the California restrictions before changing course in recent weeks. Uh, In a podcast in the area, MacArthur said um, that I've been here 50 years, the church is 63 years old, old, and the church has never had any kind of mandate from the government to close. Uh, So when they came up with this mandate, it seemed to be so rare and so unusual that we were listening. He uh, went on to tell the host of um, Edify with Billy Hallwell, the podcast, that upon hearing dire predictions about the death toll, it was enough to make anybody with common sense pause and take steps to ensure no one was endangered. While the church initially moved to a live stream model and closed down in-person services, within a few weeks, MacArthur said parishioners started showing up again. Grace Community decided to restart in-person worship services, with church leaders saying that the government did not have the authority to stop them from gathering. In person, officials from the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health reportedly threatened MacArthur with repercussions such as fines and even possible arrest if his church doesn't comply with state orders. So essentially what they have received is um, something more akin to a reprieve. Uh, This is not a longstanding order, but a judge did say uh, that um, they would be able to meet at least until a uh, decision can be made finally on the merits of the case. Uh, again, uh, the Thomas More uh, Society uh, represented them, and while this is an historic win, it is a reprieve for a season of time until the 4th of September. Now, it was stipulated as a more reasonable action than that of the county's rush to shut down church services. The judge agreed, set the full hearing for September 4th, ordering the church to have congregants wear masks and social distance between family groups indoors. So a um, broader decision is expected next month, and that will determine the ongoing future. Now, whether or not Pastor MacArthur, if um, that decision were to rule against the church, would be willing to comply remains to be seen, and given what he has said up to this point, um, will uh, very likely be the case that uh, he would continue to hold services. So that standoff Maybe in the future, if on September 4th, when that hearing is held, and who knows when a final decision is made, if the church decision is to continue to uh, hold in-person services. Thursday, we're going to do something different here on the Georgine Rice Show. We have a radiothon with a inter-Christian uh, ministry that is ministering to the persecuted church. And we're going to give you an opportunity to take a glimpse into how some believers, some followers of Christ, uh, followers of Christ are suffering 
in the context of their faith in general, but the complicating issues of COVID-19 and how we can come alongside them and support them during this very difficult and challenging uh, season. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity and would encourage you to make a point of joining us on Thursday for that very special uh, program. We have been experiencing some technical difficulties here at um, uh, KPDQ that has made uh, additional challenges to continuing to broadcast. And tomorrow we're going to be uh, working on resolving some of those issues. So we'll share some of the best of the Georgine Rice Show on the program tomorrow and uh, hope to be live and back up and running on Wednesday. So I hope you will, uh, will join us for that. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Join us tomorrow for the best of the Georgine Rice Show and on Thursday for a very special radiothon focusing on the persecuted church. I hope you'll join us. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.